Good morning to you. Our uh, passage this morning that uh, Brother Jeff is going to preach from is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So uh, this will be a long passage, so grab a hold of the seat in front of you. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Thanks, Mike. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad that you're with us this morning. Um, as you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, I want to tell you a little story. So this week uh, has been a pretty crazy week for uh, my wife Casey and, uh, and myself. Uh, most uh, of the past uh, eight nights or so, uh, we've had something uh, on our calendar. And, uh, and so this past Friday night... Uh, we asked the Hollises, uh, Tim and Kelsey, uh, if they would babysit Larkin for us so that we could kind of have a little date night to get away. And so we went out to eat and came back and, and gave Larkin a bath and put her in bed and so forth and then sat down to watch a movie. And I had recently purchased a movie that was on sale uh, on, uh, on uh, Apple TV and so forth. And so uh, the movie was North by Northwest, a movie from like 1959 or so forth. And I don't know why I said so forth. I say that a lot. Uh, but Cary Grant is in it, and uh, Casey had never seen it, and I was excited to watch it. And so we watched it, and then afterwards, I was like, what'd you think? And she said, eh, she didn't care for it that much. But that movie is really nostalgic for me, because whenever I was growing up, I would go visit my grandparents in Arizona, and that was the only movie that they owned, uh, or at least the only movie that they would allow me to watch. And so every single summer, I would watch it whenever I was growing up. So as a kid... I would watch North by Northwest over and over and over and over again every summer whenever I'd go out to Arizona. Oftentimes I'd go out there by myself and uh, my grandfather would go to work and so I'd just be home alone and I'd spend a couple of hours out trying to find rattlesnakes or Gila monsters or something in the desert and the rest of the time I'd watch North by Northwest. Another thing that I remember from those trips out to Arizona is uh, my grandparents had something that was fascinating. They had an answering machine. All right. Last week I told a story about a sweater. This week I'm telling a story about an answering machine. My stories aren't that interesting, apparently. Uh, for those of you who don't know, an answering machine was this archaic technology that used to exist that was uh, revolutionary at the time. You actually could get a message from somebody, but you had to actually go home. You couldn't just call your voicemail or whatever it might be in order to get your message. But what was fascinating about my grandparents' uh, answering machine is that they had this tape that they put in there and so whenever you would call, the voice on the other end of the line would be Jimmy Stewart, or it'd be Richard Nixon, or it would be Ronald Reagan, or something like this. One of these celebrities, as performed by Rich Little, some of you might remember him, he was a famous impressionist. When I was growing up, I loved impressions. I loved impersonations. I would watch Saturday Night Live, and, uh, and I grew up trying to mimic like Dana Carvey when he would do Ross Perot or George Bush. Uh, Eddie Murphy when he did like James Brown Celebrity Hot Tub, some of you remember that. And, uh, and so I loved SNL. I'm glad that YouTube didn't exist when I was a kid, A, because I probably would have just wasted all of my time watching YouTube uh, and people doing Christopher Walken impressions or something like that instead of wasting it, whatever else I did. B, because I would have made videos. I would have made videos of myself trying to do impressions and so forth. I love trying to do impressions. The problem is I'm not good at it. It's like I love singing. Uh, if I was actually talented at singing, I probably would have tried to be a musician, but I'm not good at it. 
but I love it. It's a passion of mine. So impressions are the same. I have this passion for it that doesn't actually line up with my gifting. But someone who is gifted in it is Tim Hollis. And, uh, and so some of you don't know this, but Tim is actually really gifted as uh, an impressionist. And so oftentimes in staff meetings, uh, we will be having a conversation, and all of a sudden he will kind of insert something into the conversation in some sort of uh, other voice that's not his own. And uh, so he'll do an accent or he'll uh, impersonate uh, Donald Trump or George Bush or whoever it might be that uh, kind of pops into his head. Uh, and, uh, and so he is really gifted at it. Not only is he good at verbal impressions, at his speech patterns and so forth, but even kind of mimicking people's movements, facial impressions and that kind of stuff. In fact, whenever uh, we were first getting to know each other, he knew one thing about me, and that is I have this distinctive, in other words, a weird way of walking. And, uh, and so I have a very distinct way of walking about me. And so that was the first thing that he ever did whenever he met me, was he impersonated the way that I uh, walk, which is why to this day I would say, you should not spend any time around him. <laughs> don't, don't have lunch or dinner with him, don't have coffee with him. Basically just try to keep it really shallow, because shallow, otherwise he's going to learn all of your mannerisms and then just mock you kind of <laughs> incessantly. Uh, but the point is, our text this, uh, this morning is about both walking and this act of imitation this act of mimicry or impersonating uh, God, not for the sake of silliness or to make jokes or whatever, in order to be faithful and sanctified and made to, be, to look more like Jesus. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text uh, together. First, I just ask that you would uh, pray for yourself. Ask that the Lord would remove from you whatever sort of distractions you bring in this morning, that maybe you come in with some bitterness, maybe bitterness toward a family member, co-worker, someone at the church. Ask that the Lord would remove that, give you a united heart, a whole heart this morning to worship. And then pray for those around you. They need the same things. And then if you'd pray for me, that the Lord would give me faithfulness and boldness in proclaiming his word. So Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to dive into your word and consider all of the implications, I pray that you would incline our heart to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We ask these things because you're good and you do good, and so we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's start in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Ephesians 5, 1. Paul writes, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We've talked about before, anytime you see the word therefore, you want to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, its immediate link here is with forgiveness and compassion that's mentioned at the end of chapter 4. That's what we preached last week. And so our passage today is going to expound upon how this forgiveness that chapter 5 is going to talk about is tethered. Uh, or uh, the, the forgiveness that chapter 4 ends with is tethered to the sacrifice that chapter 5 is going to uh, present. And the idea is that uh, since Christ is kind, since Christ is tenderhearted, since Christ is forgiving, as we saw last week, that therefore we should be as well, that we should imitate him in these attributes. We should exemplify and emulate all of his attributes and the overarching sort of embodiment of all of the divine attributes is this attribute of 
love. By the way, when I use this word attribute, we're going to be talking about attributes over the next few weeks in our theological equipping class. We'll actually spend, uh, I think it's four weeks talking about the attributes of God. So I highly encourage you to come to that. It's uh, Sundays at 9 a.m. in the, the building that's right across the way there. And, uh, and so I'd encourage you to get there because imitation comes from deep study. The only way that you can imitate something is if you actually studied it, if you pondered upon it. That's what makes Tim such a good impressionist, is that he watches, he listens, he's catching the little nuances, the way that somebody laughs, the way that they raise their eyebrow, whatever it might be. The only way that you can really do a good impression of somebody, the best impression is spend hours upon hours upon hours researching and studying and reflecting upon the subject. And so, likewise, if we are to imitate God, as this text is going to say, there is a need for us to study deeply who God is and what He has done. And so, I'd encourage you again to come to those theological equipping classes Sundays at 9 a.m. And so, before we get to this call for imitation, before we really dive into what does it mean to imitate God, I want to tackle the final phrase that you see here in the passage, and that is this phrase, as beloved children. The reason is because if we want to really understand this, we need to understand this if we really want to understand what it means to imitate God. The idea of being children of God is something we've already seen in Ephesians. In, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his Will. So we've already seen this idea of adoption, this idea of sonship in the book of Ephesians, but notice that this is something that is already true. It says that we are beloved children. This is not just some sort of future reality for us. We're not merely waiting to be adopted. We have a couple, we'll talk about it uh, during the, the end of the service, we have a couple that's literally leaving this week in order to go overseas to adopt a child uh, from overseas. So there is a real sense in which they already feel like this child is theirs, and yet it's not technically theirs yet. And, uh, and so, on the other hand, we are already adopted. We are already sons and daughters of the Father if we've loved and trusted Jesus. We're beloved children even now. Even when we were enemies of God, He loved us and adopted us. He loved you at your very worst while we were dark while we were depraved, while we were dead, all of those things that we saw in chapter 2, he set his love on us and made us alive and made us his. The Bible was multifaceted in its revelation of who God is. We talked a little bit about this uh, and just the mystery of God, especially as it relates to the Trinity and theological equipping this morning. But the Bible is multifaceted. There's all these different perspectives of who it reveals God to be. When most evangelicals, if you just walk up to somebody and you ask them today, who do you think God is? Or you just ask a random person on the street, who do you think God is? Most people are going to default toward an understanding of God as a friend or some sort of a grandfather in the sky who just loads the kids up with sweets and then sends them home. That's kind of the image that most of us have. But what we, what we neglect is actually one of the most common images of God throughout Scripture, and that is that God is a father. Interesting, I, I, interestingly enough, I think that most of us probably, if we're really honest with ourselves, really struggle with understanding what does it mean when we talk about God as our Father, and yet that is 
one of the most common and compelling pictures of God in Scripture. I found the following quote by J.I. Packer to be both curious and convicting. He wrote this in his classic Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Almost a a decade ago, I'd been a believer for seven years or so, A decade ago, I was uh, kind of reflecting upon this uh, this reality here and uh, the reality of the fatherhood of God, and I realized I really didn't have a clue what it meant to think of God as my father. Like most men, I I had struggled to kind of emotionally relate to my father, even though I have a really good dad, but I was emotionally detached and distant from him, and I carried that into my relationship with my heavenly father. I would say Father when I was praying to him, but I realized I didn't feel that. God felt like he was distant. He felt like he was detached, or rather I felt like I was distant or detached from understanding who God was. And so I I decided to just spend some time. I'm going to spend a period of time, and so I spent six months. And during that six months, I found everything that I could on the fatherhood of God in terms of books that people had written. I reflected upon scripture after scripture. I meditated some scripture and uh, read quotes like the uh, quote by Packer and so forth. And I found myself meditating on texts like this. In Matthew 7, 7 through 11, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? That's why to this day, 10 years later, that's why I often pray. We pray these things because you're a good Father and you give good gifts. Because the Lord was doing something in my heart over this season where I was reflecting on passages like this. Or Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or in 1 John, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, I went into this season, this six-month sort of season of sabbatical from kind of thinking about processing anything else, just thinking about fatherhood over and over and over, writing blogs on it, teaching on it, and so forth. I went into this season really just wanting for my own personal edification to have my understanding of who God is raised so that I might understand and relate to God as a father. But as we talk about often, there is this relationship that exists between your theology 
and your worship. That your theology is always going to be the ceiling for your worship. And it's the ceiling for your sanctification. And so as my ceiling, my understanding of God raised, so did my understanding of worship and sanctification. This is the exact same season. It's no coincidence. This is the exact same season that I felt for the first time in my life the chains in regards to fear of public speaking fall off me. It's not to say I don't ever get nervous or whatever it might be, but I went from being absolutely terrified of the idea of speaking to having those chains fall off. It's also the season when I experienced the most fierce, vehement, passionate freedom when it came to the issue of lust in my life. The grip of lust that I'd had for decades before Christ and even as an early believer and so forth. This is the season when that began to melt away as well. There's just something about knowing that I'm deeply loved by the Father that freed me. It freed me from my selfish need to be loved by others. It freed me from my need to have my immediate comforts felt. And that knowledge has only deepened as I've taken what I've reflected upon 10 years ago and then kind of blended it together with my understanding of fatherhood on the other side of the perspective, having had a daughter now for 14 months. So don't casually skip over that phrase, beloved children in there, as if that's obvious or some sort of throwaway phrase or whatever it might be. If you can get the meaning, if we corporately can get the meaning of what it means to be beloved children, if we really get that, we really believe it and hold on to it, we really have an opportunity to experience true joy and hope and freedom, freedom from licentiousness, from legalism, from whatever it is that you feel burdened by. Now to this idea of imitation. Paul will often talk about imitation by using a Greek word. It's the word that we get the word mimic from. And, uh, and so he says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Thessalonians, and you became ministers of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see a similar idea, but not the same word that's used by Peter when he says, for to, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, there are very, very fewer things that are uh, cuter than a child that's imitating its parent. Uh, Larkin, my daughter, doesn't really like you to hold her hands the vast majority of the time. She doesn't like her hands to be touched for some reason. She's kind of sensitive about that. But she's done something lately that is super cute. One, she'll let me put my hand down like this and she'll walk hand in hand with me as she's just kind of just now learning to walk and so forth. Another thing is whenever we pray, I'll stick out my finger right there onto her little uh, high chair and she'll take my finger and, uh, and we'll begin to pray. And at the end, uh, I will say, in Jesus' name, amen. And she'll say, men. She doesn't say amen yet. She'll say men. I never told her. I never once, uh, you know, I'll ask her to say things all the time. Uh, i ask her to say dada and where's your nose and say light and that kind of stuff. And she does that. I've never once asked her to say amen. She just picked it up. I never asked her for the first time to hold my hand. She kind of stuck her hand out there because she saw Casey and I holding hands whenever uh, we prayed together. And so uh, there is, again, there's nothing or very few things that are cuter than a, uh, a child that's imitating uh, their parents. And she just picks up things by observation. Think about the idea of imitating your parents uh, from the perspective of kind of ancient Judaism. So it, it, 
this is probably somewhat lost on us from the 21st century. Most of us, the vast majority in this room, we don't do or didn't do the exact vocation that your parents did. But, uh, but uh, even a couple of hundred years ago or so, uh, if your parent was a cobbler, you were going to cobble. If your parent was a fisherman, you better learn how to fish because that was just, you tended to pick up whatever it was that your parents did. All children resemble their parents to some degree. Most of us at least bear a passing physical resemblance uh, to our uh, parents. But all of us are similar. All of us share in certain fundamental attributes of our parents. For example, humans have human children. We don't have dogs or honey badgers or whatever it might be. We have humans, right? If you're a bear, you give birth to a bear. If you're a bird, you give birth to a bird. If you're a cat, you give birth to demon spawn or whatever it is that cats have. You get the idea. Children share in certain attribute or characteristics of their parents. They are like their parents in various ways. And so throughout Scripture, we'll see this same sort of imagery that the children of God should share in certain attributes or characteristics of God. In Luke, Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and merciful uh, and evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. In Matthew 5, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And before that, in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So children are to imitate or they're to image their parents so much of what Larkin is learning in this season is not intentionally taught. She's just picking it up by observation and imitation like uh, whenever she holds our hands or says amen in prayer. Or maybe whenever she puts her head on the ground and sticks her bottom up in the air. She probably learned that from Casey because I don't really do that that often. So, you know, children, they imitate their parents for better or for uh, worse. I'm sure a few of you probably can testify to something that you're children have done at some point that you were embarrassed by, that you were ashamed of, that you wished that they had not picked up that thing from you, having your child mimic you, having your child impersonate you, having your child image you and imitate you can be really cute or it can be really, really horrid. When he or she imitates your laugh or copies a word or tries to put on your clothes or whatever, it's adorable. But whenever they mimic you, whenever they imitate you, whenever they image you in your sin, it's deplorable. Likewise, when we imitate God, there is a way to imitate God that is deplorable. There's a way to imitate God that is horrible and ugly. In fact, the essence of sin is man wanting to be like God, and it's manifest in the making of idols or images of God. And so such mimicry, that kind of mimicry is really a mockery of what it's talking about here but our hearts are naturally consumed by this sort of desire, this lust, this craving for corrupt caricature. But Ephesians is a book about new identities. It talks about how we were born into Adam, and so we take on the characteristics and image of Adam. We imitate Adam in his sin, but we have been transferred out of Adam and into Christ, and so therefore we are to take on the characteristics and attributes and image of Jesus. In Christ, we imitate Christ. 
in our selfless pursuit of joy rather than imitating Adam in our sinful pursuit of ourselves. And so in Jesus, there's a way to imitate or to image him rightly, and that is by walking in love. Let's look at verse 2 of chapter 5. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we get back to this idea of walking. We've talked about it before. A few weeks ago, we talked about walking as being a metaphor, kind of a, a common Jewish idiom for a living life in a certain way, conducting yourself in a, a certain way. I mentioned the story of a competition that I was in uh, at my work where uh, the goal was to get as many steps as possible. So I, I woke up at uh, 5 a.m. one day, and I didn't stop walking until 10.30 p.m., and I got over 82,000 steps. That's 40 miles. That's roughly the distance from here to the Cotton Bowl, which is a wasted day, absolutely, all right? And so I'm hyper-competitive. That's something the Lord needs to kind of help me to divest myself of. Uh, but the point is, there is this intentionality in walking, and it's a good illustration of that. As intentional as I was that day, I planned my entire day around where can I go that I can walk, I can get the most steps possible. That's the illustration the Bible is going to use for uh, this uh, image of walking. And so we've seen it throughout the book of Ephesians. Just by way of refresher, let me read a couple of passages. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. So that's the way that we formally walked. Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Ephesians 4, 17, I this, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We'll see in a couple of weeks. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. In Ephesians 5.8, in Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So walking is used as a metaphor for living, and when it says to walk, it means to conduct yourself accordingly. And nothing biblically is going to accord with the type of walking we are to do than the love of God. Imagine that you walk up to someone in downtown McKinney, all right? You go to the, the square, you walk up to someone, and you just ask them, Tell me the things that you love, right? You're going to get a very dissimilar list of various items and so forth. Uh, they might say that they love Jesus. They might say that they love family. They might say that they love theology. They might say that they love queso or Benihana or Big Ben National Park. By the way, that's a very Jeff-centered list. If you want to buy me a gift like a national park or something like that. At the same time, there are various things that uh, we shouldn't love that we do, right? We love sin. Maybe we love Baylor. We love cats, whatever it is. There's certain things that we shouldn't love that some of us do. We all love tons of things, but to various degrees, the way that we love them are going to differ. I love pizza, but the way I love pizza hopefully is not the same way that I love Larkin or Casey. I'm not going to take a bullet. I'm not going to jump in front of a car to push a pizza out of the way, whatever it might be, I don't think. That's the type of love, though, that Paul's talking about here, this love that's exemplified by sacrifice and by selflessness. And so we walk in love, as it says, as Christ loved us. And how did he love us? By giving himself up for us. Every so often, you might read on the internet or you might hear someone preach a sermon or talk about this sort of idea that, 
maybe we should question, maybe we should ask some questions about the historic understanding of the death of Christ and the idea of sacrifice. Isn't that archaic? You have some who will go so far as to say, isn't that just divine child abuse for the father to sacrifice his son? That's archaic, that's gross, that's barbaric. We want to get rid of those sorts of ideas. The Bible certainly affirms this idea that the Father gives His Son for us. John 3.16, everybody knows it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? But that's not the only side of the story. The fact that the Father gives the Son is not the only side of what the Bible is going to say about this act. When God acts, as we talked about in theological equipping this morning, He acts within His triunity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are involved in every aspect of redemption and creation and so forth. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all active in the work that takes place upon the cross. And so the Scripture is going to explicitly testify to the Son Himself giving himself willingly. Galatians 1.4, talking of Jesus, he, who gave himself for our sins to li- deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. First Timothy chapter 2, Jesus again, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we can certainly say that Jesus is an innocent victim, but he's not just some sort of innocent passive bystander who happened to get caught up in something bigger than himself or that he was betrayed by his father certainly not child abuse, he willingly walked to the cross. Not only did he walk to it, but he clung to it for us and for our sin. That's not child abuse, that's love. That's grace and mercy, that's the very heart of our hope. So what I wanna do for the next couple of minutes is I wanna just kinda put on our theologian hats and talk a little bit about what are called the theories of the atonement. What is it that takes place in this moment as Jesus hangs upon the cross? What is it that's happening there? What's the transaction? That's, uh, that's taking place. And so throughout history, there have been a, a number of ways. Again, the, the atonement is multifaceted, kind of like the revelation of the character of God is multifaceted. There's various perspectives on it. And so uh, throughout history, there have been various ways that theologians have described what is it that's happening in this moment as Jesus hangs upon uh, the cross. And so among the more popular theories, you have something that's called the moral influence or the example theory which is gonna state that uh, Christ's death was a demonstration of his love to compel us to live a life of generosity and sacrifice and love. In other words, we see how much Jesus loved us and that's what happens on the cross and so therefore we're to live in the same way. Another theory is Christus Victor, which states that Christ's death was a victory over sin, over uh, over Satan, over uh, death, And it tends to focus not so much on the personal aspects, the horizontal aspects, I mean, sorry, the vertical aspects of our redemption, but more on the kind of cosmic scope of God uh, proclaiming His victory over all of His uh, enemies. 
And, and the third one that's probably most popular is what's called penal substitutionary or vicarious atonement, which is the idea that Christ's death was a payment for our sin. He bore the penalty of our sin as a substitute for us in our place. Now, here's what's fascinating. Each of these are true in various respects. Each of these are true to various degrees in what they uh, affirm. But the problem is when you use one in order to deny or to neglect or to negate one of the other aspects or nuances. So that's what often happens. If you're on the Internet and you're reading a book or uh, you're listening to a sermon or something like that, oftentimes when someone goes into one, they will say, thus and no other. This is what happens, and they'll deny the other perspectives. That's the problem, actually, with most liberal theology. In fact, oftentimes, most often, when they seek to affirm one and deny another, what is almost universally the case is they're affirming that that third idea that's called penal substitutionary atonement. So the problem is not in what is affirmed, it's in what is denied This is the problem with most liberal theology, with theological liberalism, is that it will affirm certain social aspects of the gospel. It promotes social justice. Yes and amen to both of those things. Those are good things. But it denies the need for evangelization. It denies the need for personal salvation. It will affirm that Jesus was a good teacher, but it will deny that he is Lord and Savior. It will affirm that his death had a purpose, but deny that its purpose was in our place and for our sins. But that's the language we see over and over and over throughout the New Testament, is this language of substitution. Let me give you some examples. Jesus himself says in Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 And when Jesus had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 9, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 1 John chapter 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, by the way, is this fancy theological word. Just It means a sacrifice that is intended to appease divine uh, wrath and uh, justice. We even see the idea of substitution in the Old Testament. You're all familiar with the story of Abraham and how he's going to have to sacrifice Isaac, and yet something is inserted into his place, something is substituted instead, and there is a sacrifice instead of Isaac. But we see it in one of the most famous prophecies of Christ's death, Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or later on in Isaiah 53, verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So again, the, the atonement is multifaceted. There's multiple perspectives that we can glean from it. We shouldn't necessarily uphold one view to the neglect of the other, at the same time, I think we should see that this idea of penal substitution is at the very heart of what takes place in the atonement. The heart is not the whole body, but it's an essential aspect 
to the body. The body doesn't function without the heart. And that's why Tom Schreiner, who's a professor of New Testament at Southern Seminary, says this, the theory of penal substitution is the heart and soul of an evangelical view of the atonement. I am not claiming that it is the only truth about the atonement taught in the scriptures, nor am I claiming that penal substitution is emphasized in every piece of literature or that every author articulates clearly penal substitution. I am claiming that penal substitution functions as the anchor and foundation for all other dimensions of the atonement when the scriptures are considered as a canonical whole. I define penal substitution as follows. The Father, because of his love for human beings, sent his Son, who offered himself willingly and gladly to satisfy his justice so that Christ took the place of sinners. The punishment and penalty we deserved was laid on Jesus Christ instead of us. So that in the cross, both God's holiness and love are manifested. The riches of what God has accomplished in Christ for his people are not exhausted by penal substitution. The multifaceted character of the atonement must be recognized to do justice, the canonical witness. God's people are impoverished if Christ's triumph over evil powers at the cross is slighted, or Christ's exemplary love is shoved to the side, or the healing bestowed on believers by Christ's cross and resurrection is downplayed. While not denying the wide-ranging character of Christ's atonement, I am arguing that penal substitution is foundational in the heart of the atonement. All right, so all of that was a digression in order for us to really dig into what does it mean when it says that Christ gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. And Paul's point here is that as Christ loved us, we are to love others selflessly and sacrificially, even to our own hurt. I heard a story um, a couple of weeks ago from a new member of the church. I've told this story in the member meeting, if you're at the member meeting. And, uh, and, and so this, this uh, member grew up in another country, uh, grew up in another religion, a religion that uh, literally worshipped uh, idols. And so he grew up worshipping idols. Moved over to the United States and uh, was uh, taking some graduate courses and so forth. And uh, as he was doing this, he wanted to meet some other people. He wanted to meet some Americans and learn about American culture and so forth. And so he went to a little pizza party. In that pizza party, he met a guy. And, uh, and that guy just began to serve him. And uh, so whenever they would have a festival or a feast uh, in, uh, in his previous religion, uh, that would involve uh, something that begins at midnight, this guy would take him. Even though this guy had family, this guy uh, had kids and so forth, he would get up out of bed whenever uh, this member would call him and say, hey, I need a ride to Walmart. I forgot to get this for the festival. And this guy would get up and he would serve him and he would serve him and he would serve him. And he loved him, and he loved him, and he loved him. And so finally, my buddy asked him and said, why, why are you doing this? Why are you serving? Why are you always willing to help, even to your own hurt? And the guy shared the gospel with him. And that led this guy eventually to be converted. And he's here with us uh, today as a result of that. This is the type of love that Paul is commending here, not just this wishy-washy love like you and I might love tacos or whatever it might be. The type of love that actually costs us something as Jesus' love cost his life. That's the picture of walking in love as Christ loved us. A few weeks ago, my daughter really learned to walk. I talked about that a few weeks ago. She was just beginning to learn. Now she's just walking over the place. You ever see a monkey when they kind of are walking around with their hands above their head? That's how my daughter walks for some reason. 
that helps her with her balance. Tim's kid walks like this, like a zombie, in, at a speed that you can't measure in miles per hour. It's inches per year, something like that, all right? Uh, but my daughter, she is running around like this. It looks like she's being chased by bees always, and uh, she's just fluttering in and out. She'll fall down, and she'll laugh, and then she gets back up. And then she'll run some more, and she'll fall down, and she laughs and gets back up. You know what I never do? I never scream at her for falling down. How dare you? We're Ashleys. We don't fall down whenever we walk. I never criticize her ambulatory method. I never make fun of her. I never mock her. I never get angry at her that she hasn't quite learned perfectly how to walk yet. I am overwhelmed with joy at the image of seeing my daughter walk. If you're a parent, you understand what I'm talking about here. Like, it is overwhelming. The first few times that she walked, I almost cried, and I'm not a crier. But the idea that my little girl is walking, it filled me with joy, even though she's falling. She probably falls as much as she actually walks. And yet I'm filled with joy at the same times. And so, likewise, as you and I are called to this image that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, we're going to fall. Absolutely. I will probably fall in my call to love others as Christ loved the church before I'm out of here today. At some point, I will slight somebody. At some point, I will ignore somebody. At some point, I will neglect somebody. At some point, I will say something that's a little bit rude to my wife or whatever it might be. I will fall a million times throughout the rest of the week, and yet I keep getting up. I keep getting up and asking the question, who do I love today? Who can I serve today? My wife, my daughter, you, my community group, my neighborhood, my office, whatever it might be. Who can I love? But we can't walk in love if we're chained to bitterness. If we're chained to anger, if we're chained to wrath, if we're chained to slander and clamor and all those things that we talked about last week. It's kind of like trying to walk with your pants around your ankle. You're not going to be able to go very far, very fast. There's something holding you back. It's this ball and chain that's been, uh, that you're trying to drag around. And so that's why what we talked about last week is so important that we divest ourselves of bitterness, of anger, of slander, of pride, of gossip, of lust of greed, whatever it might be. And this is where we really have to anchor ourselves. This is the importance, why we expounded, why we took 15 minutes or so to talk about the atonement. The reason that this is so important is exactly because you will fall as you try to carry out this call. See, Jesus' sacrifice is the original. Ours is just a Xerox copy. It's always less clear it's always less perfect. It's always going to be somewhat of a blurry perspective and picture of what we're called to do. And so that's why we need to reflect upon the, the reality that he died for us in our place. It's the truth of Christ's death for us and in our place that makes this call to love distinctly Christian. Not just moralism, not just uh, new age spiritualism, not just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get up again, sort of uh, American uh, terminology. When we imitate God and walk in love, we walk in a posture of gratitude, selflessness, humility, and sacrifice because that's how Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So therefore, 
be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I pray that anything uh, that was said or heard that is not edifying and encouraging, anything that uh, is not true, Lord, would drift away, and anything that is, Lord, would go down into our hearts and change us that we might look more like your son as we study him more, that we might be more like him, Lord, that we might learn how to imitate him and his love and imitate him and his grace and imitate him and his mercy. So help us, Lord. Would you do that for us individually? Would you do that for us corporately, Lord, that this would be a little microcosm, that Parkway Church would be a little microcosm, that there would be shockwaves sent throughout McKinney as the gospel goes forth from here and people would come in and say they love people well. So help us, Lord. Only you can make this into a reality, all of our hopes and dreams. And so we ask that you do so because you are a good father and you give good gifts. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.